Enterprise Management 360, your main source for tech news, analysis, podcasts, and videos for the enterprise. Hello and welcome to the EM360 podcast with our Ask the Expert series, a weekly conversation with people who are impacting the enterprise tech landscape. My name is Max Curtin, Editor-in-Chief here at EM360 and your host on today's podcast. Now in today's episode, I'm being joined by Rory Hanratty, who is the Deputy CTO of Kanos, a digital services and platform provider. So Rory, thank you very much for coming on the podcast and agreeing to talk to me today. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Would you mind just giving our listeners a quick background on yourself and, and your history with the company? So, like you mentioned, I'm Deputy CTO in Kainos. I have been working with Kainos for about five years now. I've a sort of a, <laughs> like, like most people in tech, I've, I've been around for a little while and I have all sorts of different roles. I think my first job in, in IT was making tea for a senior development team <laughs> as an intern. But um, over the years, I've, I've worked as a developer, an architect, kind of moving up to kind of large enterprise size programs and stuff. And now working in Kainos, I'm kind of responsible for all sorts of different things. But, you know, technology strategy being one of the significant ones. So you're a man of knowledge, which is why I've brought you on, because you're the perfect person to talk to today, because we're going to be talking about Kubernetes and how that has revolutionized the kind of software development and just going to have you walk us through its early stages, where we're at now, and hopefully what we're going to see in the future. And if we take that from kind of a starting point, could you take us back to kind of that pre-Kubernetes era to demonstrate why its arrival was so needed in today's climate? Yeah, sure. And actually, one of the, one of the things that, that's good about what you mentioned there as well is rather than saying infrastructure, you mentioned software development, because that's what this is about. I think when people look at things like Kubernetes, they sort of think, oh, it's just a way of managing infrastructure, but it's, it's way more than that. But to frame it a little bit, I guess, let's go back pre-infrastructure as a service, just to kind of help people understand the, the journey in this one. So in the olden days, when I first started off, when I was making tea and stuff, we pretty much used to write software that we would manually install onto hardware, right? sticking it straight on, onto boxes, um, loading disks into things and all that kind of good stuff. Virtualization was one of the first things that kind of changed all that, right? So instead of having one server equals one application or one server equals a couple of applications you had to manage yourself, you could suddenly run a few machines on one of your servers so you get more bang for your buck. But again, that was all quite manual. Then players like Amazon turned up with, you know, they start off with S3, but then they start offering things like EC2 instances and so on that you can then manage using code. So you can spin up virtual machines quite easily using code. It's all repeated and stuff. And clearly I'm skipping some steps here, but it's, it's quite useful to understand how this kind of evolved. But there was still significant manual effort around this. And typically what you would have, you would have maybe infrastructure engineers who would be expert in setting up VMs in the cloud, like EC2 instances or on Azure or whatever that you happen to use. So there was kind of a bit of a separation between development and infrastructure still. And it was a little bit more expensive. It was kind of similar to running your own servers in that you kind of needed to understand what size machine you need to provision, what you could run on there, trying to figure out how many applications you could squeeze onto the box and all that kind of good stuff, doing things like scaling your infrastructure as well, also somewhat manual. And obviously the platform providers started providing you things like auto-scaling and all the rest of it, but you were still almost managing machine by machine. And that adds overhead, right? That adds more people to your teams. It adds more things to think about that you have to do yourself. Things like even like patching operating systems and all the rest of it. You kind of need to do all that stuff yourself. You're just above 10. When Kubernetes turned up, it's a spinoff out of Google, basically. So Google are in the business of running planet scale infrastructure. And they wanted to make sure that they're making the most out of the data centers that they're building. So they, they took 
quite a while to kind of figure out how can we make the most of all of these servers that we have and how do we treat our servers not like pets anymore but as things that are disposable so that introduced a lot of different things to think about there how do we effectively deal with things that are failing how do we deal with scaling stuff and all the rest of it and the code name for their project that they did, did this with was called borg so clearly some star trek fans in there yeah there's an influence <laughs> There's definitely an influence there for, for people who aren't, aren't, aren't kind of keen on, on, on Star Trek. Um, Borg are an alien race that basically kind of assimilate everything that comes before them. So it's a, it's a little bit of a foreboding kind of a name for a tech project. But hey, tech people like naming things, interestingly. But they basically open source this. And that's one of the really interesting things about this is that they could have sold it as a proprietary technology and made some money off of that, but they actually made a, an active decision to make this open source and allow other people contribute to the code base and, and help it evolve, which is which has been a big factor, I'd say, in, in success of, of Kubernetes and, and its adoption. So spun out of Borg, becomes Kubernetes, and again, initially you had some kind of early adopters leading on, on kind of picking up on this. So they sort of look at Google and go, well, actually it works for them. It might work for us. We did that in Kainos as well in that we um, we were, I guess, in, in, in the kind of field of early adopters in that we were spinning up and managing uh, Kubernetes clusters on behalf of our customers. But there are still things that you need to do. You need to monitor the health of the platform itself. In the early days, you know, there's not as many people understand it. So there's there's a little bit of um, <laughs> a little bit of looking after that you need to do when you spin up a platform like this. We've moved on from that now, obviously, with things like Google's GKE is their kind of managed Kubernetes offering. You've got EK, EKS in it and, and AKS, respectively, on, on Azure and, and AWS as well. So even the cluster management stuff has been abstracted away. So now all you're dealing with is, is Kubernetes itself. So that's mm-hmm. kind of, I guess, brings us to how it's come about, probably worth talking a little bit about what it does, I guess. So basically, it manages workloads. That's the simplest way of putting this. So if you imagine currently you're sitting and you've got a data center, you've maybe got some VMware and stuff in place, you still have the job of deciding what software runs on what machines. There's maybe some analysis of what you have and what space is available on different machines and so on. So you're kind of like, oh yeah, maybe we could deploy our new Java application onto server X, Y, and Z, and that's going to work. It's still all quite manual. You're trying to do resource scheduling yourself. What Kubernetes does is it schedules where your workloads are going to run based on some information that you provide about the application in terms of um, memory that it might need and kind of you know the disk space that you might need to attach to it and, and what the CPU load might be and so on. And Kubernetes will decide where it puts that and runs that. Why does that make such a big difference? Well, it's basically algorithmic. It can understand where there is space running across your cluster that it can fit these applications and run them. So basically, it's way more efficient at resource management than a human can be, which means significantly reduced costs. I guess that's the headline. Plenty more that we can talk about, I guess, off the back of that. But hopefully that gives a little bit of a, a background on why this makes such a big difference. Yeah, it was it's such an important thing to kind of come in and, and be a useful resource for people to kind of utilize and, and to build upon. So you're 100% right with everything that you've kind of outlined there of why it was important to come in, because it just it saves so much time and, and resources for its actual use. And I've seen, obviously, it's been described as this kind of Swiss army knife of technology, and yeah. that's kind of the reputation it's gathered. So is there a specific reason why that title's come to be, or is it because it, it's so versatile across the board? It's pretty much that. My colleague Gareth Workman, who heads up our cloud practices, kind of referred to as that. And I kind of I definitely agree with him. I mean, it does a lot of things for you. You kind of have a look at what it does. And if you go to Kubernetes IO, 
it's got a very, very good kind of simple introduction to all the different things that it covers off. But I guess if you think about it, we've taken away resource management. That's gone. It can also do auto scaling. Um, so, you know, depending on what traffic you have or what your workload needs to deal with, it can increase the number of instances that you have quite seamlessly across the cluster. So it can scale up and down quite easily horizontally. It's portable as well. So the unit of deployment basically is a container. Containers aren't new. Obviously, they've been around for quite a while. They're not from, you know, things like C groups and stuff like that. For those of you who are uh, kind of old school Linux people, I think Docker did a good job of, of kind of branding what those things are, i.e. containers. And what Kubernetes does is it kind of adds all of the missing things that just use a container on its own doesn't do. So like we said, deployment, auto-scaling, Disaster recovery is another significant thing that you can do as well. So Kubernetes will constantly monitor the health of your applications. If it looks like one of them has fallen over, it will schedule a new one to run, spin up, and add it into your scaled applications pretty seamlessly as well. So from that point of view, like it does a lot, right? So we don't have humans essentially doing those activities. We've now got the container orchestration platform, i.e. Kubernetes, doing all that, all of that for us. I've mentioned it once already, but it's worth coming back in this as well. The, the cost efficiency that you get from using something like this is very, very significant. You can see something upwards of like 80% reduction in costs in some places. I think there's Sarah Wells does a great talk at the, um, I think it's a KubeCon, talking about Financial Times move to Kubernetes, and they saw like literally 80% reduction in costs, which is pretty fantastic. And we've seen something similar for, for, for our customers as well. It's interesting you bring that up because cost is obviously something that kind of plays on people's minds, obviously. And we're seeing Kubernetes kind of be widespread and there's some people who are still hesitant to jump on this. And obviously with Kubernetes being this open source platform, that's fine. But then you've got to factor in, you know, whether you're using local systems, whether you're going, you know, from a cloud angle, AWS, whatever it might be that you're using, that's the forward thinking that you've got to take in terms of like the cost strategy. So if we take that a bit further, what can be said about the actual implementation strategy and what can people really be looking for in regards to that? Good question. So you're exactly right in that there are different factors depending on, on, on where you're thinking of adopting these things. For people who are mostly still dealing with their own data centers, again, the real advantage here is that you're going to get better return for your investment that you've made in, in team and, and hardware that you have. You're able to schedule workloads much better across your data center than you probably can do today. However, that will come with the cost of having to have in-house expertise on how you spin up, run, and manage those clusters. Um, so there's a trade-off there. When you're looking at more hybrid setups, one of the real advantages, I guess, from using something like Kubernetes is that you're standardizing on like the, the unit of deployment being a containerized application. So something that you're going to build that's going to run Kubernetes in, say, data center will also run on public cloud. So that's a nice advantage there again. So you're getting kind of a unified developer experience. Now, it's probably worth talking about that a little later on. Just we come back around and that maybe around kind of developer experience and what you need to have in-house to be able to properly build things for Kubernetes because it's a little bit different to, to how people maybe currently think about it if they're used to VMs or, or EC2 instances or, or compute instances. The obvious choice for most people where you don't have very, very sophisticated workloads or very, very complicated applications is to use the managed services that the big three cloud providers use. So you're mostly just dealing with application development. Good thing about Kubernetes when you're talking about managed instances and actually a little bit, I guess, when you're, you're looking at your own data center utilization is that you're paying for usage pretty much. It's not like you're buying a big, huge reserved instance to run 10 applications on. You're paying for 
whatever it is that you use in terms of what's deployed across your infrastructure. So that makes a huge difference as well. And that's actually quite a, quite a big part of the overall cost savings. When you add that together with the idea that you can quite easily auto-scale applications based on demand, that's how you see that big reduction in costs. The trick to your strategy in terms of using something like Kubernetes is to look at where you can leverage managed services that are provided by somebody else. The way I always talk about this and, and technology in general is that any decision that you're making, you should always start with, are we in the business of? And if your sentence is, we are in the business of workload orchestration, congratulations, you're probably one of the big three public cloud providers. If you're in the business of anything else, look to see what kind of effort and work you can hand off to people who specialize in this stuff because they invest way more than you, you can probably invest in terms of the security of the platform, making sure that it's up to date and all those kind of different things. Such an important thing for people to consider when they're looking at kind of implementing this because there's so many different factors to consider and, and to look at. So there's a lot to kind of look at there. There's another thing that, that's kind of been on my mind when we're talking about this is obviously we've mentioned how widespread it is and, and how open it is for people to gain access to it and, and how useful it is. But it's still quite new in relation to other technologies, right, in, in terms of what we talk about normally. So yeah. When it comes to getting this kind of Kubernetes-specific talent, that can be difficult. You know, we're, we're seeing skill gaps across the industry. So what is the state of that skills gap? And how do you think you can kind of bridge that to make this more widespread and more accessible? It's funny, like, kind of, I always have to remind myself that this stuff is still new, you know, kind of working on, I guess, frontline of technology. I've been kind of involved in these kind of like platform level abstractions and stuff like that for the last couple of years. So I kind of forget that not everyone has the same level of understanding because we work on this every day. So you're right. There is a skills gap there in terms of availability of, of people who have production level experience of Kubernetes and even beyond that, depending on where you're at, running at significant scale. The good thing is, is that there is a vested interest on behalf of those providers who, who have the kind of higher level platform available examples of Kubernetes like AKS and EKS to train people up on how to use them. It benefits them because they get better, uh, they get better usage out of their underlying data centers if more people are using things like Kubernetes rather than single instances and stuff like that as well. So, so they've a vested interest in making sure that people have the skills out there to adopt this stuff. So AWS and Microsoft, Google as well, have, have certifications available. There's tons of online resources as well in terms of getting you from naught to having deployed quite quickly. The other thing as well is lean on other people's experience on this stuff. One of the major things that we do in Kanos that probably sets us apart from other organizations who are basically like kind of partner software engineering firms is that we look to enable our customers as we're doing deliveries for them. So if big part of your strategy is that if you don't have capability in-house and you want to build it, partner up with somebody who knows how to do this and who has done that before and make them part of your team. Look a little bit beyond just the kind of supplier management way of trying to do these things. Leverage the experience of people who have done this already. One of the things that we've done actually in, in Kainos and, and, and we continue to do and would certainly advise others to do this as well if they're looking to build their own capabilities is look at how you can kind of identify people out there who have skills that are transferable and are going to be useful when it comes to, to, to using platform components like Kubernetes. So what we've done is we've designed academies to help upskill people who are maybe more traditional network admins or system administrators and teach them about things like public cloud and how Kubernetes works and what it does and what it doesn't and how their skills can be leveraged to kind of get up and running quite quickly when it comes to Kubernetes. Things like monitoring your production applications, 
understanding the security implications and all the rest of it, they don't quite change when you use Kubernetes. You're still responsible for all those things. So there's a lot of skills that are kind of maybe at first glance don't seem like they are transferable, but they absolutely are. The other bit to mention, Max, is the development side of things. We mentioned that earlier on. There's very different skills that you need when you are developing using Kubernetes. One of the things I guess is to think of as this is that Kubernetes will decide when it's going to restart your application, not you. And that's a big difference. Hang on a second. I've got a, a visitor. <laughs> got a guest here. on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've, we've a guest in the podcast. He, he, wants to, he wants to play with some uh, Warhammer 40k <laughs> stuff that's in here, which sing. is fine. <laughs> you can work away. Yeah, there we go. So that's, that's my son, Finn, has joined me. Um, yeah, so sorry, just, 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 so what I was about to say there is that we've, we've sort of got the infrastructure side of things. And from a cost point of view, that makes all sorts of sense to use Kubernetes for that. The other bit that's worth chatting about is developer experience. By using something like Kubernetes, your route to production can be greatly accelerated if you have an appropriate deployment pipeline in place. So if you're able to allow a developer to make changes, package up their application and have it running in an environment in minutes rather than hours, that gives you significant advantage in terms of, say, iterating your product or your platform or your services for your end customers, whether that's B2B or B2C or, or anything along those lines. So it makes a huge big difference. But like I say, there's a different set of skills that are required to build for Kubernetes. It does things like kill your application without telling you. It will recycle basically what are called pods, which is where the applications are hosted on a frequent basis. It may scale things up or down, and your applications need to be able to survive that. For people who want to know a little bit more about that stuff, it's, a, it's a probably a whole other podcast, but you could do well to start off with looking at a 12-factor approach to building applications. That's a really, really good starting point for people to understand what they might need to do. Because again, by adopting something like this, it does mean a shift in approach to, to software development. I think you're right. We could do a whole other podcast on that discussion in, in terms of like building on that and going forward. Uh, but you're 100% right in the sense of it, it's utilizing skills that people already got, finding people in the industry and transferring those skills in, into this resource. Because it is, uh, it is an interesting area to kind of approach. So I think there will be that interest for people wanting to kind of make that jump or explore it a little bit further. So uh, yeah, it's definitely a, an interesting time for sure. And I kind of wanted to use that as my wrap-up point here just to talk about how you think all of this is going to change in terms of the Kubernetes landscape. What are we looking at in the next couple of years from, from a people standpoint, but also a company standpoint? I'm definitely not going to attempt to, to say what the tech landscape looks like in 10 years from now, because <laughs> I will be wrong. But I guess just in terms of general direction of travel, what we've seen and will continue to see is big kind of cloud providers putting new abstraction layers in front of what we used to do pretty much. So Kubernetes is replacing what we used to do in terms of infrastructure as a service. We can see things like database as a service and the various different platforms replace how we used to run data storage systems and databases and so on. That's going to continue. For more complex applications with more significant logic and so on in them, Kubernetes is, is, is here to stay. You can only guess at what they're going to do in terms of roadmap development and so on, but they continue to increase the number of things that it does that you don't need to. So early on, auto-scaling wasn't really a thing with Kubernetes. You had to manually tell it to scale, whereas it does that now. So they're continually adding things to Kubernetes to, to basically change what it does. The Swiss Army knife keeps getting bigger and bigger. Outside of that, what we're starting to see at the moment as well is, is almost people using Kubernetes to run things like uh, functions as a service, which is quite interesting. 
But like I say, it's the abstraction levels are going to keep increasing. And as a business, what you need to be doing is, like I say, is go back to that idea of putting in front of anything that you're doing from a technology point of view that's heavy lifting and ask, is that part of your core business? Because if it isn't, you should be looking at these different abstractions to kind of keep moving away from that. Um, so rather than specifically saying what it's looked like, that's probably the, the best advice I can give to people right now. The other thing I think goes back around to what I mentioned about the uh, software engineering side of things and, and, and software development. Look at developer experience in your organization. Look at the things that make it easier for you to iterate your product or your service, things like continuous deployment and so on, automated testing, all of those things. That's going to be a great benefit to you as well to really take advantage of, of, of this kind of platform universe. Yeah, definitely. And um, I, I think that's kind of spot on. And it's it's interesting to see what's going to grow. And I think you hit the nail on the head. It's not going anywhere. So uh, it's something that people should be paying attention to and, and looking into if you're not already, because it does have the resources. And if we go back to the Swiss Army knife analogy, it has a lot of tools available for businesses to kind of take advantage of. So that's fantastic, Rory. It's been absolute pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you very much for kind of walking us through and, and explaining that so well to all of us. Yeah, no problem at all. If people are interested, you can kind of Google Knos and Kubernetes. You'll get a, a couple of different uh, articles and stuff around some of the work that we've done. Um, people might be interested to know that the NHS app that we built for NHS England runs in Kubernetes, which allows it to run at fairly significant scale. So it's basically for, for everyone in, in, in England that uses the app um, and scales up and down quite quickly. So you can find information about that. I would also kind of recommend people as well check out the... Cloud Native Compute Foundation, CNCF. Lots of really good resources on there about not just Kubernetes, but you know, cloud native computing in general. So that's also quite cool. And I mentioned it earlier on, worth mentioning again, if you go to kubernetes.io, there is a video on there of Sarah Wells from Financial Times talking about her experience. People might find some useful tips and, and suggestions on how to think about this stuff in there as well. Definitely. Yeah, those are some fantastic resources and everyone should kind of check those out. And I think you and me should probably do a discussion further down the line as well about uh, some of these other areas that we didn't get to delve into today. So we'll have to pencil that in at some point. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. <laughs> awesome. Lovely. Thank you very much, Rory. And thank you, everyone, who took the time to listen to this. We hope you enjoyed our discussion. For more podcasts like this, head on over to our website, em360tech.com, or you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasting fix. We'll be back next week with another in the Ask the Expert series. But until then, hope you have a great week, and we'll speak soon. You've been listening to the EM360 Podcast. For more great content, head on over to em360tech.com.